on the Empire Podcast this week, we've travelled all the way to the Côte d'Azur so we can sit in the dark room and tell you all about the Cannes Film Festival. Plus, we catch up with the rest of development's Jeffrey Tambor. Hey now! And the Great Gatsby's Joel Edgerton, Toby Maguire and Kerry Mulligan. How do you like them apples? And then our London branch tackle the week's big releases, including the aforementioned Gatsby and Fast and Furious 6. As they say here in the Quasette, le boom. Bonjour le pod, je m'appelle Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that had Pele touch its knee this week. I'll be honest, things got a little messy. Football joke. As ever, I'm joined by some of my beloved colleagues. First off, he's an Empire Pod regular. He's a man's man, a man about town, and an expert in cans laughter. It's Mr. Ali Plum. <laughs> I'm stopping. It's good. It's good. I like it. Uh, then we have a new camera woman, which is political correctness gone mad. It's camera man, not camera woman. Louisa Wells, hello. I'm bucking the system. I apologize. You. That's <laughs> all right. No worries. And uh, finally, after over a year of trying... It's a bit where it's Demo. Hello, Demo Wise, our kangaroo. Ooh, 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 it's a bit where it's me. <laughs> it's a bit where it's you. Um, okay, we're going to stick to our regular format for this one. So we asked for your questions, preferably can-related, and you duly obliged. Uh, at Kieran Faluna asks, and this one, Demo, I think is specifically targeted at you, how much is a pint of beer over here? Anywhere between €6 Euros and €15 Euros in the Crozet area. 15 euros I don't drink, but even I know that €15 Euros is a little bit... Uh, expensive. We're not talking about the nightclubs or anything, we're just talking about the bars. At Tom McClellan 24 asks, and this is a very serious question, is Marion Cotillard available? If so, get me her number lol. Who's lol? I don't know, I don't know, but he wants he wants a number. Uh, is Marion Cotillard available, Demo? She's not, is she? No, she's not. She's she's uh, attached to Guillaume Canet, who has a film here. Yes, Blood Ties, in yeah. which she also stars. Alongside Clive Owen, Mila Kunis, and Zoe Saldana, we'll be having interviews with people from that film next week. It's a bit of a coincidence she's she's turning up in her husband's film. A little bit, a little bit. I wonder how she managed to get him to uh, cast her in the role. Mm. Mm. Uh, interestingly, and by interestingly, I mean not really that interestingly. I found a photograph somewhere in the Palais de Cinema Mama Mama where there is a Marion Cotillard, yes, strangling a rabbit. Yes, the- she, she does do that. In her defence, it's not a, it's not a real rabbit. I, it took me by surprise. I actually had to ask you guys if I remember rightly going, is that a real rabbit? And then you pointed out, no, it's got fake yeah, glassy glass stuffed eyes. eyes yeah. yeah. Uh, well, not the eyes are stuffed, but you, you know what I mean. Uh, if you're wondering about the sound quality this week, we are recording this in the Empire apartment, which is in Cannes. We won't reveal the address in case you come and rob us. Uh, but that's why it's maybe not as good as it is in usual weeks. That's about right. Uh, we can tell you an address that we, we used to live in, which was, was it, what was it, Malibu Point? I, Malibu, uh, 10880 Malibu Point. That's where we used to live. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to send any helicopters over there, then by all means be our guests. Uh, and speaking of uh, houses, at Ben Haynes 9 asks, do all British film journalists share a big house in Cannes? I hope so. Not really, do they? No. I wish no. they did. They would have a, like a fireman's pole in the middle of it. <laughs> Is that for sliding down or for little strip shows? I hadn't really thought that one through. <laughs> <laughs> Got a bit sexy there. Yeah. I'd love to see a... Oh, no, I, wouldn't. I was going to say I'd love to see a Carmode strip show, but I don't think I would, actually, to be honest. No offence, Mark. Demo, if all British film journalists lived in a massive house and there was only one double bed, who would be King Daddy? Who would, <laughs> who would get that double bed? Pass from the Daily Mail. <laughs> all to himself. You don't have to think about that one. <laughs> uh, okay, at Darren Ryder asks, <laughs> what's the oddest thing and or movie you've seen so far or ever in Cannes? A Damon... This is what? How many cans is this for? You this is my fifteenth. Fifteenth can. Okay, so you've seen shit you people wouldn't believe, as Winston Sedmore says. I, I'm on, now I'm on the spot. I can't quite remember, but I do remember. I think you were there when it, the, the, one of the strangest things I think we've both ever seen is a kind of strange, sort of unkempt tr- transvestite <laughs> revealing himself on the croisette next to a sweet stand or something. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, we came out of a. This was exactly the story I was going to tell. <laughs> it's stuck in both our heads. We, we, we just come out of Old Boy, so I think that makes it 2003, 2004, something like that. It was a Saturday night, and we came out of the, of the, uh, the Palais de Festival, and we were walking up the Quasette towards our apartment. And uh, this, you say transvestite, I remember it being a lady. It was a, it was a, it was a lady of, so we shall say, advanced years, and she was uh, clearly not entirely all together there and she came towards you Damo she saw you she took a shiny to Damo and she came towards us she had skirt she had a skirt and as she got closer to Damo she lifted up her skirt to reveal nothing on underneath except 
a, a essentially a grey unkempt shrubbery. Um, that's essentially <laughs> that's the best way I could describe no, you said it. I didn't look. That's why. I no, I looked. I was because I could. I couldn't. But I had to look, and I was like. She must be wearing underpants because no, she's not wearing under. Oh my god! And she she shashayed towards you, Damo, and you 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 kind of froze. You went a bit like a hedgehog. If I just freeze here, if she doesn't see me, if I don't move, I'll be fine. And I just walked on and left. You. I think I walked on and left you to it. You caught up with me about two minutes later. <laughs> there was no way. That was yeah. That was a that was a rare sight. Uh, but uh, Louisa and Ali, this is your first can. You've been here what two days? So what's the strangest thing you've seen? Um, I've been here two days and I think the best thing I've seen is a man taking two pigs for a walk uh, down <laughs> down the road earlier. Ali, what have you seen? The weirdest thing I've seen so far, it might have been the, is it Troma? Yeah, Troma. The Troma gang, who, who seem like a bunch of cut price, cut price, cut price filmmakers who just screamed and shouted Troma, Troma, Troma. And yeah. one of them was a zombie and they shouted at each other. Um, it was quite weird. We were trying to do some links for the video blogger sites and they were just having a good scream. Yeah, I, I think it actually worked out in the way because we filmed it and it might get into the video blogger sites. Is that right? It, yeah, it may well. It was yeah. a, a slightly useful and very confusing interruption. It was. Yeah, basically they, they do this every single year. They they pay people pittance, I think, to come up and dress up as a toxic Avenger and his mates and they, they run up and down the quasette shouting trauma, trauma, trauma. I don't think anyone has ever looked at those guys and went, you know what, i got to check out a trauma film. It kind of backfires, I think. But. I did also get a free invitation to their screening. Uh, did you? Yes. Really? They were handing them out as we were walking down the street. So, you know, there's the opportunity. We could see The Umbrellas of Cherbourg or we could see The Toxic Avenger 3. And what's the oddest movie demo you've seen? I, I enjoyed it, but I remember the original cut of the Brown Bunny screening here many years ago, the full two-hour cut. The one that Roger Ebert savaged. Yeah. And uh, and the short version's not bad. I mean, there is there are actually some good things in it, but... It starts off with Vincent Gallo presents a film directed by Vincent Gallo, written by Vincent Gallo, starring Vincent Gallo uh, with cinematography, at which point there was the laughter started. And the first shot of the movie is Vincent Gallo on his pant, in his pants on his bed. And the person next to me went... <laughs> <laughs> so there was no way that film was ever going to work. <laughs> the next question is kind of linked in a way because it's from the same guy, at Darren Ryder, who asked the, uh, the last question, who asks, are there any candidates this year for films so shocking that people will boo them and walk out at Cannes? Well, astonishingly, um, Nicholas Wining reference film Only God Forgives is getting a bit of um, a reputation already because of the strength of its violence and its surreality, uh, its surrealness, rather. Um, so yes, that could be one that offends people. Um, I'm also hearing it's not in competition, but there's a film tomorrow, uh, tomorrow which I'm hearing is kind of like um, has a kind of hardcore gay porn aesthetic, <laughs> uh, The Stranger by the Lake or something like that. Oh, uh, really? The producer of that called me on my phone today and called uh, me too. <laughs> really? Okay, uh, asking uh, would I be interested in interviewing the director? Apparently, there's a very high sexual content of a of a interesting. Okay. Of a gay nature. Okay. I don't, know, nature. I don't know how he got my number. But yeah, who knows? It might be great. It might be good. I'm trying to think of the, I think it might be something that's four hours long. <laughs> so, have so that might What about Uncle... Out. What's his chops? Who oh, can yes. recall his the, past the, fish? The, the, yeah, this is Uncle Boomy who can recall his past lives, which is a Palm Door winner. And Damo, your opinion of it lost you followers on Twitter, didn't it? There was there was a bit of a Twitter storm, actually. Actually, no, I was, I was, I was being... I was barracks on Facebook, on other people's Facebook pages. And they hadn't thought to secure them, so I could read them. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Oh, just people saying, you know, what's Damon Wise doing in Cannes? There are no expl. They thought they. I don't know why they thought I was uh, some kind of mainstream movie buff who was who, who was disappointed that it wasn't Michael Bay. <laughs> oh, and what weren't you? Well, <laughs> to be fair, Uncle Boomy. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was massive. Ty Joe, as he's as he's known, does weird things like run the credits like halfway through his movies and stuff like that. And there were lots of non-professionals. I think the lead character was like a carpenter or something like that. There were they, it, it's there wasn't. I think I still haven't met anybody that can tell me what it's about. Um, it seems to be about these these people that live in sort of the jungle and then sort of their dead relative comes sort of back from the grave in the form of some kind of yeti. Uh, that's that's the, that was the good I'm bit. Sold. I'm you sold. had me a yeti, and there was a woman who has sex with a fish. Um, and then there was a kind of a glittery cave, I remember that bit. But uh, now I just found it a bit sort of nonsensical and meandering. And I was looking forward to it. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience? Because you've, you've, cause you, unlike me, you see films at Cannes, I'm too busy doing the 50 bloggy, so I usually see three films a year. I've never seen 
people booing the film. I've never been in a in a in a can screen where people have booed and didn't Kermode throw a shoe at the screen once? Or something uh, he he said it was I can't remember what the film was, but I he said he, he was said, yeah, I think he, he got was, bundled out for yeah. shouting it was mad. Or he was like so that. offended by a film he took off his shoe and threw it at the screen. Uh have you ever had that experience? Well, have I ever thrown my shoes at a screen or Or anyone's shoes or any articles of clothing, or have you ever been in the in a room where people are booing and there's clearly that sort of opprobrium towards a film? Not for a while. It's sort of di- it's died down a bit. There was a there was a definite heyday a few years back where people would just wait to boo it, like Marie Antoinette. Um, there were a few boos, right as soon as it ended, and then. But if you if you waited through the credits till the film actually ended, then there was lots of applause and cheers and stuff. So it just depends when you leave the cinema what you actually hear. For, for example, with The Great Gatsby, there was just silence at the end of the movie, and then when the final final credits rolled up, there was applause. There was a bit of whistling, and I can I never I can never tell with the French what whistling means, whether it means woo brilliant or get lost, you know. But doesn't it go the other way as well? I mean, we've we've heard tale over the over the years of films receiving stupendous standing ovations. For example, Clark's Two apparently got a fifteen minute standing ovation. Um, um, so isn't that just a case of people being polite because filmmakers in a room, and then it goes the other way? People want to make a statement by booing something just because. Yeah, I mean, they we have want to, to be make seen a distinction from, between yeah. press press screenings and public screenings. Yeah, uh, and there's but there's usually applause at press screenings. It's not that snooty. I mean. Cannes is one of the more generous festivals like that because you don't tend to get applause in Venice and certainly not Berlin. I guess following on from that, we have a question from at Paul Millward who asks, is the Cannes Film Festival truly as awful and pretentious as it comes across or as people like Mark Kermode make it out to be? A lot of mentions of Dr. Kermode and the, uh, the good doctor <laughs> on the podcast this week, but uh, Damo, you've been here 15 years now. It gets a bad press. You don't have to do the things that, that wind people up so much. If you just go and see the movies... You can have a great time, and there's a really good social life to be had that doesn't involve going to parties, doesn't involve mm. um, hobnobbing or, hang, or stalking famous people. You can have yeah. a really good time here. It's expensive. That's that's the downside. And of course, th- th- there is that aspect of it. If you if you want, and you hang around with the wrong crowd, or you hang around the wrong areas, yes, it will be awful. Yes, it will be pretentious. Mm-hmm. Yes, you will have people uh, dropping names that you've never heard of and trying to get basically just essentially trying to get ahead in the film business and just clambering over people to try and make a name for themselves and there is that side of it but I'm kind of blatantly well, basically can, ignorant of that but you can see you can see them from a mile away you know you what they look like the bad can. people of Cannes you can you can almost yeah you can, you can have a, you don't need a sixth sense they're, mm-hmm. they're completely obvious and tr- they're quite transparent as to how ghastly they are and you can you can just walk away yeah. and go somewhere else absolutely the festival's already really kicking off. We're recording now on Thursday. It's it's day two. Uh, I saw my first film today. Usually I see three. Whenever we're doing the video diaries, I usually see three films. So that's one down, two to go for the next week or so. I'm a lesser person, so I will not get to see any more with my, that is not my technician Your technician green pass. pass. Because, yeah, explain explain the passes situation, Damo, if you can, for well, people who might true. not know. <laughs> Uh, the pass system, well, there's, at the top you get white, and that's access all areas. You can request tickets for the gala screenings and the black tie stuff. Then there's rose pastille, which is pink with a yellow dot. Uh, then there's pink. Uh, and these are the kind of get-in-first options. So, you know, it's, there's a queuing system. It's like the Grand National, sort of a bit staggered. So um, people with, with a white pass can can rock up first of all. Then they let the, the rose pastilles in, then the pinks. Uh, and then blue, there's a massive queue. And then yellow... And then I think there's orange, and um, sadly I think you've got green. I don't, I don't even know what that is. Well, Louise has got a media technician's pass, so essentially they're they're basically saying you don't have to see any films. You're just. I think the the worst is just a bit of plastic with your with your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> and Damo, this year you have a, you have a pink. I've got a blue, which is interesting. Um, I went to say to see uh, the Bling Ring, Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring, uh, and I was interesting. Um, with all due respect to Sofia Coppola, at Cannes is the only place that I would consider queuing for an hour to see a Sofia Coppola film. Uh, it actually turned out to be okay. In the end, I quite enjoyed it. But it is a strange, strange place that you, you, you can queue for two hours. I think I saw Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull here, and I queued for about two and a half to three hours to try and guarantee getting in. I was at the very, very front of the queue with Sam Toy. But I turned up half an hour before, and I was only about three rows behind you. I know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but also there was a certain badge of honour about being the first to be in the cinema to see... Mm-hmm. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. 
and then the first out afterwards. <laughs> so I could walk around in a daze for an hour trying to process what the hell it was I'd just seen. But um, Damon, you mentioned you've seen three films. What have you seen so far? I've seen The Great Gatsby. I've seen The Congress by Ari Folman. And uh, this afternoon I saw Fruitvale Station, formerly known as Fruitvale. Okay. And that was a, uh, that was a Sundance hit, that was wasn't a Sundance, it? Yeah. That was the big Sundance winner. I think they think more people will go if it's got Station on the end of it. <laughs> Just in case, I think it's Mr. Fruitvale. (laughs) (laughs) The Great Gatsby is going to be covered later on in the podcast by our team back in London. But uh, the the Congress is interesting because this is Ari Fulman who directed Waltz with Bashir. And uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are looking forward to this one. I know, especially in the Empire Office, there's a lot of fans of that movie. Yeah, it's um, it's based on um, a book um, which is about about, about lawyers and the legal industry. And apparently Ari Fulman changed the subject to Hollywood. So it stars Robin Wright as an actress who is being presented with the ultimate contract. She, she, if she signs this contract, she'll never have to work again for the rest of her life. And it's because she's going to be sampled. She's going to be, it's, it's like an extreme version of motion capture. She's going to be uh, not only motion capture, but her her expressions and her emotions and her thoughts are going to be basically absorbed by the studio. And they'll, she can go off. She, the, only, the only thing she has to do is retire because the studio will then just run off with her image and make whatever, do whatever they want with it, make commercials, okay. movies. You know, They can put her in a sitcom. Um, so it's 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 not really a satire. It's kind of um, a kind of a meditation on on the industry really and how it's going and how you know. The, Ari Foreman told me today said this is this is happening. It is here. It may not take over, but actors are are being mocapped. And actually, Robin Wright said she she's been mocapped she by by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. And you know, so she feels you know it's got something relevant to say about the way it's going. So she worried that her face has been stored in some computer bank somewhere and years after she's gone, someone might dig it out and lo and behold, <laughs> Princess Bride 2. I, we didn't get around to the, the... The conversation didn't turn to that subject, I'm afraid. That's the way my brain works, I'm sorry. <laughs> in fairness, they have just tried to do that with Audrey Hepburn to advertise yeah. Galaxy, haven't they? So if they've got they an easier way of doing it, it's probably not unimaginable. In the world of the film, you can stipulate that you... And it's funny, in the film, she stipulates that she won't do sci-fi, <laughs> as well as porn and um, I forget what else, but it's interesting that... you know, That's basically so, yeah. the, the two main groups. You don't want to do sci-fi or porn. As an <laughs> but it's, I think it's kind of an in-joke because the director is a massive sci-fi buff and it is a sci-fi movie. But the second half of the film, she takes she sniffs an ampoule and she becomes a cartoon character. And okay. she, says, she says, I look like um, a cross between Cinderella on, Cinderella on heroin and... An Egyptian queen on a bad hair day. <laughs> She's not a bad description. Is that in competition, Damo? That's in that Open Directors Fortnite. Open Directors Fortnite. Okay, cool. Um, it's difficult to keep track of all the different strands mm-hmm. I can, I have to say. But we'll get that maybe next week. Uh, thanks for your questions, everybody. Uh, any other questions for us about walking a can beat, do send them in to us uh, via Twitter, most probably, because I can't access email from here. Uh, it's uh, at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, and we'll pick them up, and then you can ask Damo questions next week. Okay, time for an interview now. Damo, you've spoken to Ari Fulman, Robin Wright. I interviewed Pele yesterday, which was a bit of a thrill for me, it has to be said. We interviewed Brian Kirk, director of a forthcoming film called Passengers. We've got tons of people coming up over the next week or so, but first off, Ali here went to the Hotel de Cap yesterday, uh, which is the very tray chic, mega expensive hotel just as I can, to talk to uh, Baz Luhrmann, and the illustrious cast of The Great Gatsby, which is opening in the UK this week. It is, of course, the opening film of the festival as well. The interviews with Baz Luhrmann and Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Jay Gatsby, are part of our first Cannes Fitty Blog episode of 2013, which should be up on the website, Louisa. Uh, on Friday morning. Well, this is Friday morning, technically speaking. Now, it's like well, primer it again. This is Friday right morning. Now. Yeah, it should be up now. Definitely. It'll be uh, up now. It's up now. Okay. The first Fiddy Bloggy is currently up and live. It is currently up and Go live. Go watch it. Second one's up Monday. Third one's up next Wednesday. Fourth one's up next Friday. And the fifth and final one will be up Monday week. Fingers crossed. Okay. But for the podcast, Ali spoke to Toby Maguire and Kerry Mulligan, who play Nick Carraway and Daisy Buchanan, and Joel Edgerton, who plays Tom Buchanan. Uh, he started off by asking Edgerton about... The currently shooting Jane Got a Gun, which has been undergoing the mother of all troubled productions. Am I right? That is correct. And and then just another primer for um, Carrie Mulligan and Toby Maguire. I make reference to Satan's Alley, which was the fake film at the beginning of Tropic Thunder. I'd forgotten that. As well you might. And uh, <laughs> Toby Maguire plays a gay monk uh, in It Is Quite Funny in a movie which is fitfully amusing, I personally think. Uh, but I ask him about that. And he also makes mention of a yellow doozy. What he's referring to there is the massive yellow car that Gatsby drives in the film. Out of context, 
And if you haven't watched the trailer or know anything about the book or the film, it'll mean nothing to you. But that's what he means by the yellow doozy, the big customized yellow car. Right, I'm going to start with the cheeky question. Does uh, the Jane Got a Gun director know you're here? Yeah, yeah, we, we caught up the other night. It's going good. Well, I mean, we're winning. That's what <laughs> I said to someone the other night. We're winning. I will say this, like, you know, we've had our issues and all that, and, and it's very, you know, it's everybody knows about it because whatever you read on the internet is true. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, uh, but Gavin O'Connor is, is our uh, hero, and uh, it's not the right way necessarily to go about making a movie, everything that's happened, but I've got to tell you, man, we're going to win. We are winning, and we're definitely going to win. I can't wait. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a triumph uh, when we get to the end, and... Uh, and everybody kind of knows a little bit about the backstory. And also, look, every uh, every bit of press is good press, as they say. So hopefully it just draws attention to a movie that's going to be good. Now, I gather that you kept your American accent when the cameras stopped rolling for this film. For which movie? For Gatsby? For Gatsby, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did a bit. Not all the time, but... You didn't keep the boorishness as well, did you? Yeah, yeah. I... I, started, I think I started realising that it was more fun to be Tom than to be myself. When you can't take off a moustache for a whole summer in Sydney, now, spend a summer in Sydney, then try and spend it with a pencil moustache. Yeah, so it was a little hard to shake, Tom. I, like, you know, in all honesty, I, I kind of kept the accent sometimes just to keep myself in tune. But uh, I have to also say it was an enjoyable character to play, so that did spill over a little bit. And tell me about the scene where Gatsby a.k.a. Leo, collars you, basically. Was that a one-take deal, or did you have to do that over and Dude, over? we shot that scene for, like, 15 days. I mean, we shot it for, like, a week, and then we came back a couple of weeks later and shot it for a couple more days of it. It was, you know, that's a 10-page scene, and, and, I mean, I challenge even an independent filmmaker to make that in one day. But we, uh, probably one of the most interesting bits of insight I could give you is that, that at the end of all the whole process of that scene, Baz put all the cameras outside the window and let us run that whole scene like it was, you know, like a play. So there's not a single bit of technical equipment in view except outside the window, which was fantastic. But uh, yeah, I had Leo grab me by the scruff of the neck quite a lot. He's great, man, too. When he gets fierce, he gets fierce. He was like... That's what I thought. Red in the face, spit on my, you know. Like, I think we, you know. I think someone said the other day that their favorite part of the movie is us doing a, what do you call it when you touch foreheads? What, Eskimo kiss? An Eskimo kiss. Was it tough being the one guy in the party who couldn't enjoy it? No. I mean, I kind of like embraced that early on, the, the fact that Tom was just the guy who would refuse to dance, you know? I was the uppity one. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Um, and quick question, and it's a bit of a tough one. What is the one acting performance that really inspires you of all the acting performances you've ever seen? Of all the ones I've ever seen? Oh my goodness. Oh, look, there's tons, but uh, I was very impressed by uh, a movie that Daniel Day-Lewis did that I thought he should have won an Oscar for, In the Name of the Father. There's stuff in that movie that, that you know, it's, 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 it's not a flashy performance like a lot of the Oscar winners, you know, he's not doing a, an ailment or this or that, but, but I, I mean, that performance is extraordinary. And I watched it again the other day. And uh, so, yeah, I'd put my money behind that one, but I could list it hundreds. I'm curious, Toby, did you get in contact with your Side of House Rules co-star, Paul Rudd, for notes on Nick? <laughs> did Paul Rudd play Nick? He did indeed, in a TV movie in 2000. I didn't know that. I just learned that. You didn't know right that? Right now. Um, wow. Uh, I did see Paul Rudd recently. Funny, we didn't talk about it. Um, he is such a sweet guy. I looked him for notes. And I would have called him about this. I'll just call him and ask him what I should have done. <laughs> 51 million, US box office, weekend, weekend opening. Do you think there's potential for a sequel? And what would you call it? Well, we've discussed that. <clears throat> and I think it would, would, the argument is somewhere between the great Buchanan's and the great Caraway. Uh, the great Buchanan's, <laughs> I think, was a stronger, stronger idea. Well, I don't know. And it was, it or, was discussed more, I think. I think it had a stronger feeling behind it. That's right. Yeah. The Adventures of the Buchanans and The Caraway? Adventures of Daisy and Nick. <laughs> Perfect. There we go. We found the title. <laughs> Nailed it. Which song with the film soundtrack has been most stuck in your head? Florence's song. I would say Jack White's cover. 
And pop quiz, what does the F in F. Scott Fitzgerald stand for? <laughs> Answers. <laughs> Do you have any fond memories of previous can visits? You've not been, This you? is my first oh, time. this is your first time. Yes. Um, I came with Wall Street a couple of years ago. I, I was terrified the entire time and I stayed down by the palais. So um, the whole thing is sort of slightly blacked out for me. <laughs> um, I genuinely don't remember very much. Well, some, you know, it's just blind terror sometimes. <laughs> you tend to forget things. But um, no, I loved it. It was great. It was, uh, it, last night was, was unbelievable um, to open it. I mean, mm. that's something. And are you excited about, I mean, you may not be here to see them, but are you excited about Only God Forgives, I'm guessing? I'm so excited about Only God Forgives. Have you seen that trailer? This is winding Oh, out. yes. I'm excited about I'm that. I'm very excited about that. And have you guys taken any mementos from the set of The Great Gatsby because... No, but you did take stuff, didn't you guys? Got the yellow doozy. You have the yellow doozy. Really? It's my car. It's what I drive. <laughs> do, do the paparazzi like that? They love it. <laughs> I let them drive it all the time. Um, and is there a plan to make Satan's Alley a major motion picture anytime soon? I saw Kate Winslet and she said that that was my crowning achievement. And I, at first, was going, oh, thank... Thank you. And I realized <laughs> she diminished the rest of my career and thought the thing I did two shots in was the best thing I'd ever done. So I don't know. I guess I should consider making it a movie. Uh, news time now. There's no shortage of news in Cannes with projects being confirmed left, right and center. So what have we got? Ali? Well, what I've got is, and this is a little off the top of my head, remember Iron Sky from last year, which was a Finnish Nazis on the Moon movie. Uh, it Who cost, can forget it? I didn't see it, but I can't forget it. It cost about $8 million to make, uh, which, considering its premise, isn't that much. You'd have thought if, it, if it's the story of some Nazis coming back from the dark side of the moon to invade Earth once more, with a kind of Sarah Palin being the present riff as well, it would cost more, but it didn't, and it certainly had an Asylum Studios-flavoured tinge to it. It didn't do very well in the box office. So you might be surprised to learn that they're planning a sequel. And guess what? Crowdsourced funding is on its mind. Uh, they want only a 15% of the next budget. They want it to be $15 million, the sequel. So they only want a certain chunk from its fans. But that's their angle. Uh, and they're aiming to get distribution rights and do it that way the first one actually made money even though it cost eight million it it made just under that in the box office but it, it sold it to enough places that it was kind of viable personally i don't know where they can go from this because i thought nazis on the moon was pretty much wrapped up with that little movie but you know what good for them we'll see how it goes fair enough uh damo has anything crossed your mind have you been paying attention to what's well, been coming a out today from the uh, producer of dead snow 2 talking of nazis we've got, we've got norwegian <laughs> really? nazis yes so hopefully we'll be catching up with him soon i don't know if you saw the first one yeah um tell me recall that yeah yes yeah. Ein Schwein die Eins, zwei, drei, yeah. Eins, we both got it wrong. Eins, zwei, die. So, no, I'm just looking forward to catching up and finding out or how... I actually can't remember what happened to the Nazis at the end of Dead Snow, as it was called. I got a phone call today from one of the producers of Dead Snow 2. Bloody hell. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know how they... How, how do you reboot a Nazi sort of... <laughs> Nazis in the snow um, franchise? <laughs> I have no idea, <laughs> but it's going to be fun finding out, I guess. And uh, I, I, I think the, the the thing that I've had most fun doing here so far was I uh, interviewing Pele yesterday and Brian Grazer for this this movie Pele, which is about Pele. Um, and it's very interesting that, uh, just finding out what they're planning with this movie. It's going to be about the greatest footballer who ever lived, if you don't count Lionel Messi uh, or Stuart Downing, uh, and or uh, Julian Dix. Or Ju I'm impressed, Ali. I'm impressed you know that. How do you know that? How do you know Julian Dix? Because I love the footy footy football. Yeah? You love it? Yeah. He's also a very good semi-professional golfer. He is, isn't he? he yeah, always, he is, yeah. yeah. This is where Helen, if she were here, would go, ah, stop the football. Yeah, but then she'd start talking about Joss Whedon and Orcs, so we'd have to go, ah, and bring it back to football again. But anyway, we talked about Pele. I interviewed Pele, uh, and it's a very interesting film. It's going to focus on his life from the age of nine up until 17. And there's a whole load of Pele life story to cover in potentially future installments. Obviously, the 
1966 World Cup, Ali, you remember that, 1970 World Cup, uh, winning with Brazil, escaped to victory, his his role as an actor, going to America and popularizing the, the, the game there, and of course, the uh, Viagra adverts, so I'm really interested to see what yeah, happens. Did he talk about Willie Carr and the donkey He kick? didn't. Funnily enough, it didn't come up. The taking of Pelly One Two Three, yeah, Chopper Harris. Um, none of it. None of it came Charlie up. Charlie Nicholas. Ch- yeah, that's another one. There we go. <laughs> All right, I think I'm. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm swimming upstream here. Right, so. Thinking of Paul Nicholas. I <laughs> uh, no, he was in uh, Just Good Friends. Uh, Charlie Nicholas played for Arsenal and Celtic. Uh, okay, time for one last interview now. Uh, one last interview before midnight. After several years away from the small screen, Mitch Hurwitz's brilliant Arrested Development is back, back, back with a new series on Netflix, no less. The cast came to London recently for the premiere, and we took the opportunity to send Nick DeSemlian and Ollie Richards along to talk to Pop Pop himself, the man who is both George and Oscar Bluth, and Larry Sanders, Hank Kingsley, Jeffrey Tambor. Hey now. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Jeffrey Tambor of Arrested Development. Wow. How are you doing, sir? I don't know. I just got scared. You, it's so formidable the way we were talking, and all of a sudden, you know, this is so serious. Professional British voice. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I will be equally as professional. Everything we say sounds serious because of oh. the accents. Oh, I see. I am talking in an English accent. That's what I, I find very curious. Yours has, your accent has it become more grave. crazy. I, I, I start doing, oh, I'll pop around and you know, have a cuppa. I don't know what happens to me. It's embarrassing. I wanted to ask, on Twitter yesterday, you tweeted that you had a fry-up. You had the whole works? You had- I did, except I don't think my uh, bread was fried in the actual uh, uh, stuff. However, there was a, well, it was a very good fry-up, I must say. Um, uh, but um, there was rumblings, rumblings <laughs> uh, for, throughout the tape, modern, I, I, I might say. People going, oh my God, what's that? Um, it's very interesting. But then someone tw- uh, tweeted me that you have to... Um, <laughs> you have to eat it in a certain order. Wow, I didn't. I didn't know there were rules. I think I. I, I don't know. It was, but the reason I did it is because we had a driver last time I was here who said, "Oh, you have to fry up, and, and you know, and uh, and you have to have that, you know, and yeah, yeah." And then so, so I had a, a fry up. Lovely, and then but then you had to go to Boots to get something to help you out with the. I did have with a, the little, uh, a little, uh, yeah, a little, um, a little. Uh, okay, let's just say gas. Okay, <laughs> yeah, let's let's draw a veil at that point. So it's now seven years since uh, the last time you were anywhere near Arrested Development. Six. Six, sorry. I said seven. seven earlier and David Cross was rude and said six on camera. Oh, well. Then she's rude. It's seven years since we filmed. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So how, how easy does you know, becoming uh, George Bluth come to you? Honestly, I didn't even think about it. Um, I trust him so much mm. and... Uh, it's so comfortable, not easy, but so comfortable to get in that the directions are, are sort of subsumed in the writing itself and it's there to, uh, uh, to do. Also, we move at such a speed and the gun was really on us uh, mm. in terms of like, I mean, we had to get the day. We had to get the day that there wasn't all that much uh, rumination think time. You just went. And um, we are best at, at that. We had uh, we move at quite a pace. We are written, but a lot happens on the set that's changed, and uh, and then you have to understand some of it hadn't been even written yet. Mm. Uh, so you know it was so exciting. One, we were back. Two, we all love each other. Three, we're so proud. We have we, you know we have this great engine, Netflix. Uh, we're coming out in such a a cool school kind of way and our fans are really appreciating it and um uh we just uh, even today uh, you can you can see it amongst the cast i mean we really like each other and uh, really respect each other so we've always been the little engine that could mm-hmm. and uh, now we have this big fan ted you know surrendus and uh, and and it seems to be working i saw it twice in front of an audience um and it works they laugh yeah and are interested and it was so. It's been along all those along of those years. It's been talked of consistently, like you've all been asked constantly when it was going to happen. Right. And there was talk of the movie, and I believe a script was in existence. Right. So until you got to the point where you're making the Netflix episodes, right. had you seen any material before that, any scripts oh, no. that were different? Oh no, I never. If I understand your question, I never saw it. I never saw the script until about a week before I shot. Okay. Um, but I knew that's the case. Uh, it's kind of the way we work. And there would also sometimes when you were studying at home, you would say, well, I know this is not going to be what I'm, I'm going to get because it's going to change yet again. Mm-hmm. Part of because of logistics. Remember, he's trying to he's trying to put 15 
episodes together uh, and the logic of that. And also it just gets better and better and better and better. You have to come to work re- ready to play, which this group is. Yeah. And is that the same as it was when you were shooting be- like the, uh, the previous three seasons? Did, they, did those scripts change throughout as well? Yeah. The, you didn't have it for a week to mull over and, and put the, you know, you, you, it was sometimes, sometimes you'd get it the morning of mm. um, and you would pray. You would pray on your knees that you weren't the first shot up, <laughs> uh, and I never was. But usually, it was Porsche for some reason. We went, oh, come on, you know. But uh, and anyway, uh, uh, great care was taken with if you were the first shot. But that's the way I like to fly. Anyway, um, I come from a school. Uh, uh, I used to go to the theater two and three hours before, prepare, almost do it once before I went on, and you know. I just hate that. I can't stand it anymore. It's too much a war of nerves. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad. It's so interesting that, that I've come full circle with how, how I work. Um, and we've had guest stars who would come on and say, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Because it's, it's, it's beautifully structured. It's beautifully unstructured structure. You've had many years of hey now. And uh-huh. uh, now you've got no touching. And, which, and which, always money in the banana stand. Of course. Yeah. Which of those do you get the most? You know, it's very interesting. I'm getting uh, 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 always money in the banana stand, yelling from a, a car, no touching, no touching. But now the hay nows are coming back. It's very interesting. <laughs> I think something's happening where there's a resurgence amongst the young. Of, of a, I just had a, 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 a talk in the hall that they somebody loved Hank. You got to understand, I, I'm really lucky. I got two shows mm. i mean mm. you're lucky to get one that are were groundbreaking and both guys gary shandling and mitch Herwood, these guys have changed my life mm. i've been watching a lot of a lot of larry sanders recently and uh-huh. it still stands up completely yeah is there any chance that's gonna make an arrested development style comeback well they better hurry <laughs> we'll be in walkers uh i doubt it i, I really do um yeah i don't think uh i don't think gary I, it, would, it would already have happened but maybe Maybe. Mm. I think audiences would love it. You know, the world is changing. Now Now that the, the Netflix model is coming, and I'm, I'm doing a series also on um, Amazon uh, called The Onion News Empire, uh, there's a lot more coming out. Uh, and who knows uh, what's going to go on right now? I mean, the world is open and, and taking meetings even as we speak. It's really changed, hasn't it? Doesn't, you know, oh. can- cancellation no longer means you're done, does it? Oh, Please. I was reading about all the shows that are being picked up in the trades and things like that. And I went, oh, my God, it's just there's one mode and there's another mode. This mode that we're in is so fast moving that it, it is, it's, it's, it's exponential. I don't know what it looks like still. I don't know what it, and, and I have young kids uh, and they're going to retire in 2065. What the hell is the world going to mm. look like then? But it's very, very exciting. A very exciting. I mean. The technology, the, what you can do, what an actor can do. And uh, I teach acting, and I you know, always feel sorry for my students because I say there's so little jobs offered. Not, people are making phones on their phone, I mean, uh, films on their phone. Mm. It's, it's good. How often do you teach acting? Uh, I actually go around uh, the United States now doing a one man show called Performing Your Life, uh, which is sort of an acting workshop, cum, uh, kick in the ass, cum. Uh, comedy show, come whatever, it just keeps changing. I've gone from commencement addresses to talking to corporations to uh, doing acting workshops at colleges. I actually taught the animation. I did the animation guys at uh, DreamWorks. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's really fun. So what do you do with them? What you, how are you teaching them how to act? I, for them, I didn't. I didn't. We just talk, I took two actors and I worked a scene from them from Harold, Harold Pinter's Betrayal. Are they adapting that then? <laughs> no, no, no. And I worked a scene mm-hmm. for them and I showed them how, what it is to work and uh, how to break certain rules and how to get out of the whole concept of, you know, good, rather, you know, bad and, and uh, make mistakes. I teach mistakes like crazy to err, you know, and to, to, to you know, fall in, your, fall in your face, which is really, really important. My motto is, you know, try to lose sight of the shore if you can. And uh, it's interesting we're talking about because look at look look where I am, mm. and it's sort of, it's sort of that. I think the audience has great respect for that. 
I think that's why our audience, I think the audience knows what we're doing. And I think that's why they've taken sort of an ownership of this, of this enterprise and saying, this is our show as mm. well. well they, they have brought us back. Well, right? it wouldn't be back if the, uh, you oh, know, if the God, audience oh, hadn't no. grown, would oh, it? No, we would have been gone. And this audience, by the way, that was out there last night was not our audience then. This is a younger, this is another generation. So it's very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Just going back to your acting classes, do you do one on being a twin? Playing twins, no. Oscar and George is no. It, I'm but kind of joking. Lo- but. Uh, that that metaphor is being being enthed in this series. You'll you'll see it's put some very very interesting things going on. Mm. Really interesting things. Um, I was uh, I went okay. Here we go. This is going to be really interesting. The, the 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 bar is way up there for both characters because that stuff's silly. But I imagine that it's also quite tough to do. Silly's hard. The the, the emperor of silly, of course, Mel Brooks. You know. Who's one of the most intellectual people I've ever met? Um, silly is very hard. You have to, you have to, uh, because if they catch you winking, you're dead. I was just talking about Jason and how, how brilliant his performance is. And the reason we get to be so silly is he never winks in his performance or saying how cute we are. And uh, that casting and that performance is brilliant. And you've got a superb cast. Is there, but is there any, any character you particularly enjoy scenes with the most? Oh, scenes with the most. Well, this time around, I'm I'm with my wife a lot, mm. uh, and more shall be revealed. You know, that's I have I have an easy answer for that. When we first got together, we all sat around a room. It was about the second way uh, second week in, and we were all shooting a scene in the in the Bluth living room, and it was the first night all nine of us got together, and I remember saying to Mitch, uh, "Oh no, he's my favorite." No, she's my favorite. <laughs> oh no, no, he's my favorite. As as the camera went round and round doing each performance, uh, the, covering each actor in the room, and I went, "Oh, they're, you know, I mean, I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna, but I mean, they're all great. They're the, all great. The tiny characters as well, even like people like Jean Parmesan, yeah, who just pop up. Yeah, it's like the Simpsons in that way. But. Yeah, Bob Lala. Well, I can't even do it. <laughs> I, can't even, I didn't even know how he said it last night. And, yeah, but, and the great Henry Winkler. I mean, look at that performance. And, and uh, oh, it goes on and on and on. And our guest list is quite formidable this time. And so once you'd, uh, yeah, you finished this, we're not calling it the new season, but these new episodes. Yes, season four, we call it. Oh, I was told it's not being called season four because of the way it's, it's structured. Is that right? We're not calling it season four? No, oh, okay, Jason. Oh, then you know what? Jason insisted it's yeah. not season four. Yeah, Jason, who? <laughs> uh, no, we call, you know what? We can call it anything. Okay. What was it? What was it like finishing again? So the the new moment where you spl- you all split up. I remember it. Uh, I was I had more to do, but it was around four or five o'clock in the morning, uh, standing on the pier in uh, in uh, uh, Long Beach, California. I remember being so tired on my feet, but uh, I saw the scene last night, and it plays like gangbusters um so uh, uh there's more to come here i, I i'm i'm positive I, I i'm i've always been a good uh, predictor i knew that the larry sanders show was going to be a big hit i knew more than he did i was sure of it i said this is going big um and i think i think uh we're gonna have a movie and i think we're gonna do more netflix and have a movie and do more netflix i just i'm positive of it how do you see this working as a movie? Well, part of the problem has been already eradicated because now you don't have to do a big uh, prelim. Everybody will be up to speed, hopefully. And he won't have to explain. He won't have to do 30, 40 minutes of explanation of who's who. Mm-hmm. He'll just be able to go off. Um, I don't know. I can't predict where he'll go. I would never have predicted this where he's going. But you know what? He can go pretty much anywhere because uh, the, the characters have that much latitude. And, you know, the hijinks that these two survival, you know, these two Darwinians, uh, uh, George and Lucille, they'll do anything. But everybody this time is in, in hot water. Everybody. There's not a character who's immune to, from it. And um, you said um, what viewers ask you questions all the time about uh, what's going to happen with the movie and stuff. Do you ask Mitch that kind of thing or do you just wait until it happens? Well, Mitch and I are friends. So, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, um, I think it was always in the current. It was always sort of happening. And all of a sudden, then it caught fire. Um, I remember hearing about Netflix coming into the picture. And I remember having lunch with Mitch and, and just, just saying, oh, my, you know, I just, uh, I got so excited. Because I always, I always felt this was the right fit. 
Now, I mean, there, there could be other fits and things like that, but I, I really did think, for some reason, this belonged to our viewers. It seemed so cool and so right. Uh, and it's so different, and we're different, so it marks us differently. Um, and uh, so I, I think that's a very, very good sign. And it just kills me. I was just talking to one of the uh, executives, and I, I mean, it just kills me. At 12.01, someone's going to push a button, and it's just going to go <laughs> all over the world. I, that kills me. But I take it you haven't seen quite a lot of it, given that Mitch is still in the edit room right oh, now. Oh, yeah. I, I, I edited lines yesterday from, uh, uh, from, from here. Yeah, they're still working. Uh, they, 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 it was 6 o'clock in the morning when I was uh, talking to those guys. Uh, and we were uh, uh, adding some lines on the back of my head, which is so exciting because they're working right up to the moment. It's just like, you know, it's like Broadway. It's like opening night. It, you know what? It does have that feeling. I think as you, I, you can see that we're all excited mm. and we're not so been there, done that yeah. on this one. Uh, and, you know, you can get that way. Uh, but this is a very, we're very proud of it. And that's what I think the heart of it is. And I think that's being received. You guys seem to be excited too. Although your eyes are closed. For <laughs> no. Dreaming about the other episodes. Yes. Jeffrey, thank you so much. You guys are great. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's yeah. been a pleasure. And Arrested Development is available on Netflix as of next week. That's on your computer, mind you, not the big screen. But there's no shortage of stuff for you to spunk your cash on this weekend back in Blighty. And here to tell you all about it is our London team of Helen O'Hara, Dan Jolin, Phil Dissemblian, and James Dyer. Feels a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest, doesn't it? Nil point. Nil point. Over to you guys. Right, and welcome to the review section of the podcast from Glorious London Town. Uh, first up today, I think we have to talk about Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby, which is, of course, uh, the adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel. Uh, in this, Toby Maguire plays our narrator, Nick Carraway, a young man who goes to New York City and falls into the, uh, I guess, orbit of Jay Gatsby, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the wealthy man with secrets. And could they be something to do with Nick's cousin, Daisy, played by Kerry Mulligan? Uh, this has obviously been a lot talked about in the media. It's been the opener of the Cannes Film Festival. Phil, you were on set. What did we think of this one? I was on set. It feels like a long time ago now. It was Christmas, or just before Christmas, 2011. And a long way away. It was a long way away in Fox Studios, Baz's home turf in Sydney, and it was a spe- it was a, an incredible thing to witness. Baz in his in his element with his three D camera, mm-hmm. one of the big party scenes. They called it glamorous party. I think it's in the trailer. It's yeah. one of the scenes. It was actually the introduction, the the moment in the film when you meet Gatsby for the oh, first time. The best and bit. It's, it is the best bit. It's such a Baz moment because it's got it, it, he turns to the camera and then behind him to the sound of of Gershwin, yes. Rhapsody in Blue. Woody Allen style. There's fire. It is a tiny bit on the nose, but I mean, the movie is punches you in the The nose ultimately, doesn't it? (laughs) And um, and fireworks are going off, and uh, and then you know, lit lit like a like the movie star that he really is in this film. Leo kind of introduces himself as Gatsby, and Mm. I think he's the best thing in it by by quite a substantial Mm. distance. My feelings were with a bit of critical distance from that visit to the set I mean remember this film was was initially touted to go out in Oscar season mm. and was pushed back the idea of that now seems a little preposterous because mm. it's the least Oscar mm. film I think I've ever seen it's basil dazzle to the nth <laughs> degree I've never seen it's it's you know what to expect with Baz don't you when you, if you've seen if you've seen his well, films uh, oh, yeah I mean you know what to expect from Baz you know 10-15 years ago mm. um, I would have hoped for more now well, yeah, Dan, what were your problems with the film? I just thought it had all the worst elements of summer blockbuster filmmaking thrown at, uh, you know, a literary great, and the result was more the grating Gatsby, to Ooh. be honest. Ooh, very good. Um, so I even thought the use of 3D was 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 uh, reprehensibly well, gimmicky. It's not alone there. Um, just, just, just up to the point of actually having the words of Fitzgerald floating across the screen, all the actual words of Fitzgerald yeah. on the screen. Well, here, here's what was weird about that. I mean, is it, I mean, A, the 3D I find uh, very um, artificial and distancing, and I get that he was going to an extent for artificial, because because, you know, Gatsby is a self-created man, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Mm. Um, but it, it's so distancing for so much of the film that it really holds you back from the characters, I find. Mm. And also, every time they put Fitzgerald's words up on screen, yeah. 
you felt a tonal dissonance between that and what you were actually seeing in the movie, which was, you know, unfortunate. He talked about, unlike, say, James Cameron in Avatar, where he was trying to create something new, he talked about Hitchcock's style M for murder as the the kind of touch point for his use of 3D. Mm -hmm. That it was really about, it wasn't about those... Gatsby now seems to have moved into the sort of Buena Vista Disney castle. Everything's become (laughs) so... All the exterior CG stuff is so colossally colossally scaled and artificial looking the, the stuff in a room just adds to the, the sense of artifice in 3D mm. I think you mm. know the scene with the flowers where um, Gatsby's contrived to have Caraway get Daisy to come over to his house for tea and he's you yes. know it's a comic it's a comic thing and there's this sort of fumbling Gatsby where he kind of drops the clock doesn't he and he sort of puts it back and it's a bit slapsticky yeah it's uh, very slapstick yeah. and it's that's not so. there's moments of slapstick in it. I get that though I get that in I get that idea uh, yeah but it continued the, the, that, the, that note played on and on in that particular moment yeah. he kept sort of fiddling with it and it's kind of like we sort of get the point every, every point felt like it was kind of the, every note was sustained too long I felt in that film mm. but my real problem with it was that I just think he completely missed the point of the book. I always felt that the, the Great Gatsby was a story about the America. It was about Fitzgerald, who was having a difficult period of his life as a writer at that point anyway, ex- looking around America and seeing that all of this gloss and glitz was kind of a little meaningless and that, that you know, around the corner was disaster. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't sen- get a sense of that from this film at all. Was I it- felt it was Baz Luhrmann trying to make a Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet style love story where there really isn't one because yeah. Carrie Mulligan's character is, is kind of a cipher for, for, for Gatsby's ideals. She's not sort of a real person in that sense mm. I think it softens her in a way that she probably shouldn't be softened and focuses on the love story when actually it's not really about that not for me anyway I mean other people may disagree well Ian said in his review didn't he that this, this cuts right to the surface of the source material <laughs> yeah. which is perhaps I think the best example I mean, it's weird to I me mean, I think this one I think I'm right in saying was set around the time that it is set in the book which is the early 20s and what's interesting is that other adaptations have actually moved it closer to the Wall Street crash and it's one of those cases where being less faithful to the book setting actually makes it I think on some in some ways work better on screen mm. if they had kept that sort of you know September 1929 sort of vibe about it it might have actually played a little better on that in that I wasn't sense. sure about the addition of the idea of Nick being burned out and in a sanatorium and having to write about it in order to get over this devastating experience he had mm. now you expect that seemed that seemed to over you know over melodramatize is that a word yeah Over-melodramatise? Over-melodramatise the whole thing. (laughs) It's the equivalent of Bill Paxton in a mini-sub, isn't it? It's like that that Titanic (laughs) framing device. It just doesn't need that. And he's writing the book, isn't he? He's writing writing The Great Gatsby. And it's like, doesn't really need that because you've already got a narrator. So you've already got that that as a framing device anyway. Mm. It's Um, It's a shame because I actually like the fact that it was made like that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? In the sense that... The, the studio Warner Brothers went you know what have all this money do do 3D visual effects in it for you know for a film which could have been made on you know 30-40 million dollars sure. or thereabouts you know they could have found locations and you know and, and, and done it very very traditionally and very conservatively uh, you know this film is not conservative no. and I almost want to applaud that but unfortunately I'm only going to do it with one hand Right. Do it's it. more of a clip than a clap. Do it. I mean, they did. They talked about trying to find locations in uh, in Long Island. They did do some location scouting out there, which is what Jack Clayton's 74 version obviously did. Hmm. This is, you know, that was the one that everyone always calls kind of passive and inert, that film. And this is kind hmm. of the opposite. Yes. Um, Mark Kermode yes. used the word ert. Active, it yes. couldn't be any more ert, <laughs> which is very funny and true. It really is. It's kind of the first half an hour in particular, I think. If the film had continued like that, I probably my head probably would have exploded. One of my eyeballs would have hmm. popped. It, it's insane. I felt like that at the beginning it's... of Moulin Rouge, but then it pulled it off. The Moulin Rouge, I remember the first five, ten minutes, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have an aneurysm. And then I went, oh, no, this is really good, actually. And I love Moulin Rouge. Whereas with this, I didn't get to the, oh, this is really good, actually, bit. It kind of seesawed for me between, mm. you know, utter lunacy and, and actually kind of tedious at times. I mean, for all the kind of glitz and glamour and and pace of a lot of things, it didn't... Because I wasn't engaged by the characters or by the story particularly, I was, I was finding myself kind of, you know, just drifting along in front of it and not... Mm. I mean, for me, apart from the fact that I don't think it works as an adaptation of The Great Gatsby, it also doesn't work as... A film. If you mm. haven't read Gatsby, I don't think it works either, and that is, you know, is almost in some ways worse. Yeah. Well, this is the fourth 
fourth cinematic time there's the, the lost silent film from the mm-hmm. time I think it was it was published on back of the 20s there was one with Alan Ladd Shane of course and that was just a gangster mm-hmm. film in the I think the 40s um, and then Jack Clayton's in the 70s there's a TV version none of them work I don't yeah. think I just don't think this is a film particularly it doesn't it's an internal you know they talk about the difference between the in, inside and within within and without and this is very much a within thing I think it's all in the prose yeah. it's all in the in the subtext of the prose as well Baz Luhrmann probably not the man for that but I kind of agree with Dan in a sense if you're gonna do it do it Baz's way I don't know I wouldn't want to see another respectful adaptation and I think a lot of people will actually enjoy this I mean with the screening I went to there was you know people that came out buzzing from it there's things to enjoy in the film without question I think when it slows down after half an hour it takes it takes a, a slight a slightly more measured pace Leo's great some of the scenes work really well the scene the climactic clash between Tom Buchanan mm. and Leo I think it's really good mm. in the room the yeah. stuff in the, in the I smaller Edgerton stuff. In this. I liked Edgerton. Yeah, I he thought was he was pretty, pretty solid. That's yeah. a difficult part to play because yeah. it is kind of underwritten, and um, there's, you know, the visual spectacle is is something to behold. I just don't think it's applied necessarily to the right material. Yeah. Well, that is, uh, I think that's basically our conclusion there. The Great Gatsby got two stars from us. You should, if you get the chance, go on the website and read Ian Nathan's review, which I think is excellent and sums it all up. It is. The Baz Age, he refers to it as. The Baz Age, indeed. It's a Baz Age uh, story. Uh, Now we come to the uh, second of this week's films, one that I, in in particular, have been very excited about for some time. That is, of course, (laughs) Fast and Furious 6, as it's called on screen, Furious 6. Uh, Justin Lin is back directing the story, the continuing epic story, if you will, um, of Vin Diesel, Paul Walker, The Rock uh, are all back. Uh, they're joined this time by Luke Evans, who is the leader of a gang of car thieves. So The Rock, his Luke Hobbs, has to call our heroes back into action in order to try and find this new and terrifying threat to drivers all over London, because they are in London this time, James, aren't they? They are very much in London, tearing down Haymarket, where there is surprisingly very little traffic on screen. It's bizarre, Um, isn't it? It is, indeed. Um, Fast and Furious is a weird franchise for me. It's brilliantly weird. It is brilliantly (laughs) weird, because it started out as kind of point break on asphalt, and it was just, you know... Quite po face, but fun. And then Too Fast, Too Furious was a bit of a meh hmm. sequel. Yeah. And then Tokyo Drift was a weird anomaly set, obviously, after all of these subsequent films. Uh, and really should have gone straight to video. And then it kind of had a resurgence. All the original yeah. cast returned for, for Fast and Furious. And then Fast Five... they were so successful. Yeah, they were so successful. They thought they, they had to give something back. Yes, they did. it was an altruistic return, <laughs> yeah. return to the franchise. Yeah. And then Fast Five was just this bizarre anomaly where it stopped being about racing and became a huge Ocean's 99-type heist movie in Rio where they're dragging Sace around and blowing stuff up and I came out of that film and I just had no idea what had just happened to me yeah. <laughs> um, it was amazing it was absolutely amazing yeah. but but shouldn't have been and I think that's why the hype for this one's been been so huge you know Fast Five Furious Six it's just faster and more furious as Nick says it'll be ampersand seven it, indeed <laughs> it's not I suppose it's not Fast Five I think I think this is a lot of fun and if anything it's it's bigger and just more even yes. than all the others put together. Uh, it's certainly stupid than all the others put together. There's lots of fun stuff to be in there. Uh, the Rock, as Luke Hobbs, has got 90% bigger and 80% less sweaty, uh, and both of those things work well in his favour. Hmm. Uh, he's well, They're not in Rio anymore. Of course they're not in Rio, they're, they're in, in London, London, so he's got hypothermia. They're not going to sweat in London. Who sweats in London? <laughs> the <laughs> Rock on the bacon is covered in baby oil throughout, yeah. uh, and there's some nice nods to that. But, you know, the whole team is back together. It's very much a gathering of the clans at the beginning, and then they all converge on London. And But... The thing is, <laughs> Luke Evans' team are basically just a bunch of evil twins to yes. the point where they actually have a line in there where they're saying, "Well, this is the White Hobbs. This is the you know, this is the Vin Diesel character." <laughs> they match them this all is, up. They match them all up. So they just like to the point where there's even a gag where you see one of them from behind and you're supposed to think it's Vin Diesel. And then he turns around and it's just a sort of slightly fat bald guy. <laughs> so he's just shit Vin Diesel. Yeah. And it just seems each Vin one of them petrol. is just yeah, he's just a sort of Vin unleaded. He's yeah. just they're all. <laughs> slightly shit versions of the original yeah. Fast two. There, there, I mean, there are. Listen, this is a, a film that celebrates its dumbness. It yes. wears its dumbness on its shoulder proudly, and to, to an extent where I would, al- I almost think that Fast Six and Fast uh, Fast Five kind of go through dumb and out the other side into a sort of Zen intelligence, into a sort of uh, post dumb. Post dumb. Like, are they saying Smart <laughs> is a thin line between stupid and clever? It really is, yeah. and I think yeah. they've gone the other way over it. It's, yeah. it's amazing, but but yeah, there are so many kind of. 
dumb things that don't make sense. For example, Luke Evans's character is said to be all about precision. And he actually has a conversation with someone where he talks about that's his thing, precision. And then he drives down a motorway in a tank, crushing people in cars beneath him. People who have nothing to do with anything. Complete innocent bystanders. That was actually quite... I thought about that when I was watching it. This is quite upsetting because the body count of innocent people, they don't see anyone die and they take great pain to show you people running out of cars at a few points loads of people frankly die yeah and you're I'm not quite sure how I felt about that well bad one would hope yeah, James That's a little bit bad um, but but the thing is it's, it's at odds with the sort of the fun stupidity of the yes. whole experience there's a part of you just wildly enjoying the fact that Vin Diesel does a, an aerial flying headbutt at someone but equally all these people being crushed and blown up and thrown off bridges and yeah is bad is, is apparently bad yeah there is also a scene I'd like to point out uh, please look out for this when you see it there's a scene where a, a metropolitan police officer in London leans out the the window of his squad car with a machine gun and opens fire in a in a London street now admittedly it's at that's night. my experience of London it's a, it's, <laughs> admittedly it's at night but but just for any you know American or other foreign listeners out there that doesn't happen Okay, really doesn't. So I just want you to look out for it. There is also it. a scene where two metropolitan police officers go up to uh, one of the villains and say, Excuse me, sir, would you like to come over here? I'd like to have a chat with you. And he proceeds to beat seven shades of hell out of them because obviously they're both unarmed. That does happen. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Um, I would have liked to have seen them at Kettling. Them. Yes. <laughs> Kettling them all. Kettle the yeah. evil fast, yeah. fast gang. Just getting them all sort of in one place. And keeping them yeah. there for the duration yeah. of the yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, that could have worked. Yeah. No, it's it, it is it's an odd one. There's some lovely cars in there. There's some great chases. I mean, the 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 street race they do through the streets of London, which we spoke goes down Haymarket, goes around Piccadilly Circus. Obviously, for anyone who's actually been in London gridlock, it's ridiculous. But uh, that's a lot of fun and yeah, seeing them. And a return, a return to the roots of the franchise, actually. Indeed, uh, the, the whole I live was, my life a quarter yes, mile at a time thing. It was yes. originally about street races. Absolutely, and it's nice to have street racing back in this because yes. they pay very, very loose lip service to it in Fast Five. Yeah, mm. which was uh, shocking. Which was as, completely fine as that film was. Is it nice to have street racing back in this film? Yeah, I like it. I, I, I like, I like, I like that nod back to the roots. I really enjoy Fast and Furious, the very first one. I think as a street race, there's a, there's a there's a real enjoyment to that. Yeah. I mean, the races are so well done. Yeah. Uh, although, and if anything, this shares an element with that that they are always about that these races in the first one are quarter mile long. Yeah. Yet the actual races last about eight minutes, <laughs> and they're supposed to be doing un, unearthly speed. So not quite sure what's happened there, but there is a nod to that at the end of this, where there's a sequence on a runway with a plane taking off, <laughs> which lasts for we think about fifteen minutes. Mm. I mean, we work this out that the average uh, large cargo jet probably needs a takeoff speed of about 150 miles an hour, which means this runway must start somewhere in East London and cross the whole of London and come out the other side. Uh, just, just to be so. clear, that's that's an example. It is not in London. That one's in Spain. Oh, it's in Spain. Oh, well, then it crosses the whole of Spain. Yeah. James was paying attention. Does. I was paying attention. You're, right, you're quite right. It is in Spain. It's in Spain. Uh, nevertheless, it's still a 20-mile runway. So yes, either is. way, it probably goes a long way towards which, which London. Which seems a, 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 a something... Unlikely. Yeah, so this is basically, it's it's not quite as good as Fast Five. It's definitely at least as stupid as Fast Five. It's, I think stupider, it's stupider, I think, than Fast Five for the um, flying head, but alone. It, what it doesn't have, I think, is the the level of sort of, I mean, it has spectacle, but it doesn't have anything on a par with the cars and the safe. Yeah. And I think the climax of Fast Five is just so ridiculous, but so well executed. And I don't think this quite manages to meet no, that. No, there are some there are some good action sequences and some ridiculous action sequences, but maybe not nothing quite as blow you away as that one. I would also say that I find it interesting that the characters don't really speak to each other at any point in this movie. They don't have conversations. They say cool lines that they think will be taken out in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> they exchange cool lines. They speak in kiss-off. Wow. Yeah. That's basically what you're saying. Sounds, like, sounds like the Empire office. You it know? is a bit <laughs> like that. And you can take that to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> still, still, it go. is entertaining. We gave this. We gave it three. Three stars. Which is, you know, it's one of these ones I would love to have seen this being like sort of, sort of a, a four-star knock it out the part thing and there is one particular scene where you will stand up out of your seat and applaud or you have no soul um, and you may well high five strangers sitting next to you I you've never done that in a cinema stand up and applaud during a film you would never do that well, James okay, would you? I have no soul well, he, he is um, English but I did turn and high five the person next to me I have no idea who they were Rally uh, talked to um, The Rock about the possibility of a Hobbs spin-off yes I would want to be a fly on the wall of Luke Hobbs's annual review <laughs> seriously so what have you been in this year because your arrest statistics are, are pretty lame, for honest, Luke. And you allowed a bunch of oh, convicted I've been criminals. Out, you've been hanging out with criminals to turn up in London, and all armed, I might nobody, add. Just helping them facilitate crime. Shot a vending machine. So, what a policeman are you? Yeah. 
He's not the most efficient, but he is. He gets he results, God damn it. He doesn't. He doesn't, though. That's the problem. His results, results are dreadful. Awful. Terrible results. Yeah. Good character, though. But he, he's, Double he's, dose of street racing with Gatsby as well, because let's not forget there's quite a lot of... There is. Yes. Well, quite there a lot are, of yes. unnecessary and, and, and street actually, racing. Weirdly, Gatsby is more like Street Racer, the film, than Fast and Furious. Yes, it does look more like that. Well, that, that neatly ties it all together, then, for this <laughs> week. So I think I'll probably draw a veil over it at that point. Also, like this week, we have uh, The Stoker, which is the Russian film about an ex-war hero who's taken to running a boiler house and incidentally helping out a hitman on the side, as you do. That got four stars. Next up, there's British black comedy The Liability, uh, which stars Tim Roth as another hitman. That got three stars. And finally, we have a documentary, which is Beware of Mr Baker. And that's about uh, iconoclastic cream drummer Ginger Baker, um, who, according to The Guardian this week, is the toughest interview ever. Uh, that got four stars from us. With that, it's goodbye from our can team and goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from Dan. See you in hell. Goodbye from James. I have, I have no one-liner to give goodbye. And goodbye from me. Thanks very much. Bank. Oh, it's a good day to die. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and back to us and can. Thanks a lot, London. Uh, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast, actually. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be bringing you further tales from the Quasette. While London will be talking to Sack Galifianakis and Ken Jong of The Hangover Part 3. Who will we be speaking to? I have absolutely no idea. That's how can rolls. But until then, it is au revoir from Damo, literally, because he had to run off to see the bling ring. Welcome to Cannes. This is the sort of schedule we have. It's au revoir from Louisa. Au revoir. Bon voyage. <laughs> you could say bonjour again. Uh, it's au revoir from Ali. Le bye. And I would say au revoir, but I can't speak French. Bye. Bye.